Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio chapter 9 of Romans, verses 1 through 13. I've entitled this section, Who is the True Israel? Because that's the main topic that Paul is talking about, even though this passage has that great controverted passage about election. We'll talk about that when we get there, but remember the context. Who is the true Israel? We start with Romans, well first the context of the whole book is this, wrath of God. Chapters 1 and 2, on Gentiles as well as on uh, Israelites, justification by faith at the end of 3, because we are suffering the wrath of God, we need to be justified. We need to be declared righteous before God. Paul talks about that in the end of chapter 3. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he talks about how are we justified by faith and not by works. And then after having been justified, legally declared righteous in heaven, he goes into sanctification, which is in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6 talks about how sin fights against our sanctification how do we deal with sin and then in chapter 7 he says the law stirs up sin and so that's bad too we need to live apart from the law then he gets to romans 8 and says the way we are sanctified is by life in the spirit by the holy spirit putting to death the deeds of our flesh he starts out the chapter 8 talking about sanctification and he ends up with our ultimate sanctification at the end of chapter 8 our glorification that is the context now the context is very important here in chapter 9 because when we get to verses 11 and 12, we're going to see that there are certain people who say that Paul is talking about Israel's election, not individuals' election to salvation. And that's why I emphasize the context here. Now, in chapter 9, the first part of chapter 9, Paul is trying to uh, trying to defend himself, I, I should say, against the charge that he is being hard on Israel. He's being unfair to Israel. So we start in verse 1 of chapter of Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a strong statement. This is a very strong statement. Why is he speaking so strongly? Why does he go to such lengths to assure the readers of the sincerity of his feelings? Well, here's some options. This is from Steve Ackerson. Perhaps anti-Semitism is raising its head in the Roman church, and Paul is trying to say, look, I care about the Jews. I, I don't want to participate in anti-Semitism. Maybe the, maybe the Gentiles in the Roman church were getting fed up with the special days and the special diets and all the Jewish stuff that Jews did, and so maybe there was some problem there. And Paul wants to disassociate himself with that anti-Semitism. Option number two, perhaps people were accusing Paul of giving up on the Jews to go evangelize the Gentiles. Steve Atkinson suggests that's an option. Well, after all, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, isn't he? And it would be understandable if people would think that. So Paul is saying, no, I care about the Jews just as much as the Gentiles, even though I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Third option, perhaps merely it's just because he loves the Jews so much that he speaks him, that he writes with such emotion in this verse. That's another option from Steve Alkerson. Now, here's an option from John Gill. Paul had just preached freedom from the law very hard in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And that could very easily be misunderstood. People might think he was preaching against the Jews, not against their law. So, or it could be a combination of all those options. But at any rate, Paul's very clear here. He loves the Jews. Now he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying with the Holy Spirit. He's got three witnesses here. Christ, his conscience, and the Holy Spirit. Notice he makes a subjective appeal. He's talking about what's inside him eternally. Paul does that a good bit. I I think we get so interested in... Avoiding mysticism that we tend to avoid the fact that there is an internal witness of the Holy Spirit and an internal witness of our conscience, too, for that matter. Now, when Paul says he is not lying, what's he talking about? 
Is he talking about what he said in chapter 8? I'm not lying about sanctification and glorification. I don't think so. Why would anybody think he was lying about that? I think what he was li- what he said he's not lying about is what he's about to say in the rest of chapter 9. And let's face it, some of what he says in chapter 9 is a little hard to take. That's why it's engendered such controversy. So he's saying, I'm, I'm telling you the truth here. I'm not lying. My conscience is clear about the Jews and, and the election of some of them to salvation. Now, the NIV study Bible referring to conscience says that conscience is a, is a reliable guide only when enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Notice how Paul says, my conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit, not his conscience alone. Now, I don't know if that's too strong a statement or not, because Romans 2, the natural man had a conscience that could understand basic morality, the law of conscience, in other words, that Paul talks about, but that's basic morality. But if you start using conscience for much more than that, you're going to end up worshiping an idol somewhere, unfortunately, because that's what human beings do. But let's just put it this way. If you want your conscience to be your God, you better let your conscience be your God with the Holy Spirit, like Paul says here. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. Now, when Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ, Adam Clark goes so far as to say that Paul is using the name of Christ as an oath. I don't think so. I don't think you go around using Jesus' name as an oath. I swear by Jesus that this is true. I have trouble with that. Romans 9, 2, middle of a sentence. So let me go back and pick it up from Romans 1. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying me with the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that I have intense sorrow and continued anguish in my heart. That shows that this is what he's not lying about. This is that this is what's causing his conscience and Holy Spirit to testify to the readers of the Romans. What, do they, what does he want them to know? That he has intense sorrow and continual anguish in his heart. Why is he so sad? Because of the Jews, the fact that they have not accepted Christ, most of them. Now, notice that Paul has intense sorrow and anguish for the Jews. This is despite the fact that the Jews had chased, hounded, and persecuted Paul all over the Roman Empire, as the whole book of Acts points out. Amazing his love for the people who he, by all rights, should have no love for. Romans 9, 3. For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Notice he calls the Jews his brothers. He does that several times in Acts, I've noticed. Paul says, I wish I could be cursed. The Greek is anathema. NIV Study Bible says, to be delivered over to God for eternal destruction. That's controversial, actually, but that's generally what anathema means. To go to hell. Well, when do people wish that? Moses said in Exodus 32:32, Now if you, God, would only forgive their sin, the people of Israel's sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. Moses said something like that. Take me out of the book of life. Well, with Moses, with Paul, we have an obvious question. Why would anybody wish hell on themselves? Why would anybody wish that they end up in hell? I don't care how good the cause is. That's a little strong. Let me give you a quote from Adam Clark. Very few passages in the New Testament have puzzled critics and commentators more than this. Every person saw the perfect absurdity of understanding it in a literal sense, as no man in his right mind could wish himself eternally damned in order to save another, or to save even the whole world. And the supposition that such an effect could be produced by such a sacrifice was equally absurd and monstrous. Therefore, various translations have been made of the place and different solutions offered. Well... The Holman Christian Study Bible has a a different translation. Paul says, for I could almost wish, which kind of hedges him a little bit. He says, I don't really mean literally that I want to be cursed to save the Jews, but I'm coming close. 
That makes sense to me, but the problem with that translation is, is I looked up tons of translations, and they all say, I could wish. NIV, KJV, for example, I could wish that I, I could be damned, accursed, anathematized. I could wish. Well, that, I don't know exactly what the English means, I could wish. It sounds like, it sounds like Paul, is, that might be a hedge there. It, he doesn't say, I wish. He says, I could wish. And I, don't, I haven't studied the Greek, and I don't know what the Greek says. So, Let's just put it this way. In my opinion, Paul was just being hyperbolic and emotional. I wish I could be damned to save my people. I don't, you know, I'm willing to do that. Well, let's look at some possible solutions to the problem. Here's the first option. Adam Clark denies it, but I believe this is the right solution here. Paul only wished it emotionally. He didn't have any divine sanction behind his wishes. He just emotionally wanted to show how much he cared for the Jews. Uh, Charles Hodge quoted by Clark, says this, the lang this is the language rather of strong and indistinct emotions rather than of definite ideas. He's just being emotional about it. He doesn't literally mean that he wants to go to hell. That sounds good to me. Here's another option. He didn't wish to go to hell. Rather, he wished to give up his earthly life for the Jews. Now, Adam Clark chooses that for his solution. He says that anathema here means a person devoted to destruction for the public good, like citizens were sacrificed in ancient times when the plague came. When a plague came, well, that's a nice solution, but I don't, I don't think that's what Paul meant. I wish I could die. I wish I could. How, how is being? Well, I, it could, I'll just leave it at that. I wish I could die. Not that I wish I could go to hell. I wish I could die. So that's option number two. Option number three. Here's another translation option. I could almost wish, or I could wish, or I almost wish, should be translated in the past as I did wish. In other words, in Paul's unregenerate state, Paul wished that he could die and go to hell to save the Jews. Now, how in the world can that, why would the unsaved Paul wish to go to hell for his fellow Jews? That makes no sense to me. I don't really understand that option. And then, of course, option number four, he could almost wish. He doesn't really literally wish. He just comes close to wishing. At any rate, whatever he meant, it's obviously he was passionately concerned about the Jews, which is the main point. Paul's motive for evangelism was love, not anger. He calls them brothers. Compare how many modern street preachers convey anger when they preach. It's sort of a stereotype. Somebody's screaming at people, saying, you SOBs, you're going to hell. <laughs> Here's a good quote from Steve Ackerson, the master of the turn of phrase. Quote, people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. We go to Romans 4. Romans 9, verse 4. They are Israelites. These Jews of Paul, who he so, whom he is so concerned about, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. So now he says a bunch of good things about the Jews. They have a lot of things. A lot of things belong to them. Romans 3, 1, 2, he says the same thing. So what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God, so the oracles of God, the scriptures of God, the Old testament hebrew scriptures the jews had so he's already mentioned that is something the jews have he doesn't mention that in romans 9 4 he mentions it in romans 3 1 and 2 but now he goes on in romans 9 4 and talks about other things the israelites have the adoption that means the adoption as the son of god exodus 4 22 through 23 then you will say to pharaoh this is what yahweh says israel is my firstborn son firstborn son entitled to the double portion of inheritance Jeremiah 31, 9. They will come weeping, but I will bring them back with consolation. I will lead them in wadis filled with water by a smooth way where they will not stumble. 
For I am Israel's father, this is Yahweh speaking, for I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is just another, another way of saying Israel. It's one of the tribes. For I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Israel is the firstborn of the father. Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. All right, so Israel was adopted as a son. And also, which belongs to Israel in verse 4 of Romans 9, the glory. Remember, glory is defined as the public manifestations of the excellent characteristics of someone. The NIV Study Bible defines it as the evidence of the presence of God among his people. It's evidence, you can see it, it's public, and it's a presence. In fact, many people just translate glory as presence, but I, I like to say it's a presence that everybody can see. And most likely here, Paul was specifically referring to the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle and the temple. Remember the glory that filled the tent, filled the tabernacle. It happens a lot of times in the Old Testament. Here's some scriptures, Exodus 16:7. In the morning you will see the Lord's glory. Exodus 16:10. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud the Lord's glory appeared. There's the Shekinah glory. Leviticus 9:6. Moses said, this is what the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Leviticus 9.23, Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Number 16.19, after Korah assembled the whole community against them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. That's something they could see. Big, bright cloud. When they saw that, they knew God was there. And not many people have gotten to see the glory of God physically like that. The Jews did. What else did the Israelites have? The covenants. Well, here are some list, here's a list of the Old Testament covenants that God had made with Israel. This is according to my NIV study Bible. First, the Abrahamic covenant. That's in Genesis 15, chapter 17, all the way through 21. You read about this covenant. This is very famous. The promises of the covenant were land, offspring, and blessings to the nation. We have the Mosaic covenant. That's the Sina Sinaitic covenant, the covenant at Mount Sinai, the law. We And... The NIV Study Bible mentions the Levitical Covenant. I don't know why they distinguish that from the Mosaic Covenant. To me, it's the same thing. We have the Davidic Covenant. This is a famous passage in 2 Samuel 7 when Nathan says that the descendants of Abraham are going to sit on God's throne. And then, of course, we have the famous New Covenant under which we are, Jeremiah 31, 31. I will write a new covenant on their hearts. Not like the Old Covenant, quote cited in Hebrews 8 as referring to the church. Well, the Jews had all those covenants. Covenants with God, and covenants, as you know, is a serious business. It's a great privilege. And then Paul mentions something else the Israelites have that belongs to them, the giving of the law. That's what happened at Mount Sinai and all the Mosaic covenants. And then the temple service, which was in the law, of course. The Israelites had a temple. They had a tabernacle first, and then they had a temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple in Israel. And the promises, now promises can be either the Abrahamic promises, but Paul might have been referring to the Messianic promises, the promises of the Messiah, not just land, offspring, and blessing as in to Abraham, but maybe the Messianic promises. Here's some examples. 2 Samuel 7:12, Nathan to David, When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. That's directly referring to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 2 Samuel 7:16 Your house this is Nathan continuing to David your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever that's the Messiah Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, 
Prince of Peace, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's an obvious messianic reference to, to Jesus. Jeremiah 23, 5. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch of David. That righteous branch, of course, capitalized in my version here. That's referring to Jesus. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness. Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24. I will appoint over them a single shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Servant David, of course, is referring to the antitype of David, who was Jesus. And then Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28. My servant David will be king over them. I'm going to just stop right there to save some time, but uh, that's the servant David that's going to be king. That's referring to Jesus, the Messiah. And, of course, Paul could have been meaning in, in Romans 9, Verse four here, he could have been he could have, when he mentions the promises that belong to Israel, he could have been talking about both the Abrahamic promises and the messianic promises, which I suspect he was talking about. We go to verse five of Romans nine. The ancestors are theirs. Again, he's talking about things that belong to the Israelites. Well, they have the fathers, the ancestors. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Israel. That all belongs to Israel, and from them, by physical descent. Came the Messiah, who is God over all, praise forever. By physical descent means according to a human human ancestry, as the NIV puts it. Romans 1, according to the flesh, as Paul puts it himself in Romans 1, verse 3. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. He was physically descended from David. And so even though he was not spiritually, he didn't have too much spiritually to do with the unbelieving Jews. He physically did. And so Paul is saying the Jews have all this stuff. Now, he makes a passing comment that's not directly related to his topic here, but it's very interesting. By physical descent came the Messiah, who is God over all. Well, there Jesus is directly called God. Are you listening, Jehovah's Witnesses? He's not a junior God, folks. He is God over all. Now, the NIV margin gives two optional readings for this passage there. Christ, one of them is Christ, who is over all, God be forever praised. Came the Messiah, Christ, who is over all, God be forever praised. Well, you notice that translation takes away a direct reference to Jesus as God. The Messiah is God. Another NIV marginal reading has this. Christ, by physical descent came Christ, comma, God who is over all, be forever praised. Again, that translation takes away the identification of the Messiah with God. However, if you take the, the main reading here of the Holman Christian Study Bible, you have one of the clearest statements of Christ's deity in the New Testament. The NIV has it the same way. Now, if those readings are accurate, here's what we got, according to Adam Clark. Here the apostle most distinctly points out the twofold nature of our Lord, his eternal Godhead and his humanity. And all the transpositions of particles and alterations of points in the universe will not explain away this doctrine. As this verse contains such an eminent proof of the deity of Christ, no wonder that the opposers of his divinity should strive with their utmost skill and cunning to destroy its force. And it must be truly painful to a mind that has nothing in view but truth to see the mean and hypocritical methods used to elude the force of this text. I wish Adam Clark was here so he could personally tell us what he really thinks. Some of the transpositions and particles and alteration of points Clark refers to may have resulted in some of the marginal 
translations such as I mentioned that the NIV has. Clark continues, As this verse contains such an eminent proof of the deity of Christ, no wonder that the opposers of his divinity should strive with their utmost skill and cunning to destroy its force. And it must be truly painful to a mind that has nothing in view but truth to see the mean and hypocritical methods used to elude the force of this text. Woo! I wish Adam Clark could be here so he could tell us how he really feels about that. We go to verse 6, Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now here Paul is going to his argument that God's promise to Israel has not failed. Why? Even though most of the Israelites have rejected Christ, not all of them have. Some of them have believed, and those are the spiritual seed of Abraham. He's talked about that in Romans 4. We have a true Israel and we have a fleshly Israel. We have a true spiritual Israel. And so that means that God... That the word of God has not failed. Now that true Israel were those who were justified by faith by believing in Jesus, and that referred to the physical Jews who believe, and then also refers to the Gentile, physical Gentiles who believe spiritually. Those are the spiritual seed of Abraham, and that's what he's talking about here. The word of God has not failed because Abraham has a spiritual seed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, not all the fleshly people who are descended from Israel are true Israel. So let me summarize that again. Why does Paul concede that it might look like that the word of God has failed? Because the Jews didn't believe in Christ, it looked like God's messianic promise had failed. Instead of believing in the Messiah, they were persecuting his followers. Now here's why that's not so. First, there are believing Jews within Israel. They do believe in the Messiah. Therefore, God's messianic promises for Israel have not failed. Spiritual Israelites are a subset of physical Israelites. God gave his promises to them, the spiritual Israelites, not to the physical Israelites. Now, there is an Israel after the flesh. 1 Corinthians 10:18. Paul says the same thing. Look at the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in what is offered on the altar? And so there, Paul is referring to Israel after the flesh. But here in verse 6, he's saying, look, there are some who are descended from Israel who are not physical. Some who are descended physically from Israel who are not spiritual Israel. There are some Gentiles. And there are some believing Jews who are true Israel. Let's read Romans 2, verses 28 through 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. Romans 3.3, 3. what then if some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? There Paul in Romans 3 expresses the same concern. People are going to say, well, Jesus didn't keep his promise. Abraham's promise is a null, nugatory, and void because the Jews aren't believing. And Paul's saying, ah, just because the physical Jews don't believe, there are some spiritual Jews who do believe. Both physical Jews in the flesh and Gentiles in the flesh, they're both spiritual descendants of Abraham. We might ought to make clear here the two Israels, for not all who are descended from Israel physically are Israel spiritually. The first Israel is physical Israel, the second Israel is spiritual Israel. For not all who are descended from physical Israel are spiritual Israel, because there's some Gentiles who believe also. They're in true Israel. They have, they're circumcised in their heart. So the true Israel are those who believe on his name. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that the Gentiles are not so much mentioned here at all until the close of the chapter, so that it's really talking about believing Jews, and that could be. But I, I choose to believe that Paul is referring to true Israel, meaning anybody that believes in God, whether they're physical Jews or not. But Jameson Foster Brown could be right. Now note, 
that Paul is mainly concerned about election to personal salvation in this chapter. He's talking about people who are of spiritual Israel who have been justified by faith. That's the whole context of the whole doggone book of Romans up to this point. And I say that in advance because we're going to get down here at the end of this, our section today where there are certain theologians who say, no, Paul's talking about national salvation, national salvation of, Israel, of, Is, of the Israelites, not personal salvation. No, everywhere he's talking about so far is about personal salvation. And this is an example here in this verse. True Israel is talking about spiritual salvation so that you can have Israel after the spirit as opposed to Israel after the flesh. All physical descendants were children of Israel, but not all were children of God. All physical descendants were children of the flesh, but not all were children of the promise. We go to verse 7, Romans 9. Neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. In other words, not all of Abraham's physical descendants are children of God. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Now, this verse is a little confusing. Let's take it verse uh, piece by piece. Neither are they all children. Paul is continuing to show that God's promise to Abraham has not failed because there are some other people besides Abraham's descendants who are children, and therefore the descendants' promise, land, offspring, and blessing, offspring, the seed, the seed promised to Abraham is still in effect because there are some other people who are not Abraham's physical descendants who are children of Abraham, those who are of faith. The promise was not designed to be fulfilled in Abraham's fleshly children. The promise was designed to be fulfilled in Abraham's spiritual seed, those who believe apart from the law. Now, why does Paul say, on the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac? This is a subtle point here, and I think the answer is is that, that Paul is trying to make a distinction between Abraham and Isaac because you could, if you were criticizing Paul, say that Abraham had some fleshly descendants that were of promise. After all, Abraham had children through Hagar, a, a child through Hagar, Ishmael. Couldn't we say that the Arabs who came from Ishmael were therefore children of the promise? Abraham also had another wife, Keturah. Keturah's children were Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Maybe the promise came through them. And what Paul is saying here, look, Abraham's got descendants, and they aren't the children of the promise, the children of God. I just gave you two examples. I gave you some examples. Ishmael, Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Median, Ishbak, and Shua, they're not children of God, even though they are Abraham's physical descendants. But on the other hand, we can go to Isaac. He didn't have another wife through which children might be, descendants might be traced. So I, Paul, am giving you a stronger example of how, of how spiritual offspring be traced through the line of promise only, whereas physical, there are Abraham, Abraham has descendants who are not of that line. There's lots of examples of that, but that doesn't mean that God's promises fail because the promise goes through the line of belief, a certain way through the line of promise. Let me say this again. What Paul is trying to say is that the true children of God have to be traced through the promise, and the promise goes through, uh, through Isaac. So your offspring the the seed, the descendant that counts as children of God have got to be traced through Isaac. But you can't go back to Abraham, all of Abraham's descendants, including his physical descendants, and claim that they are children of the promise. So Paul is saying, I'm looking at the spiritual offspring. I can go through Isaac, and I can look at spiritual offspring that come through Isaac to show that God's promise hasn't failed. When Paul is quoting Moses here in Genesis 21:12, But God said to Abraham, Do not be concerned about the boy and your slave, talking about Ishmael and Hagar, whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And so what Paul is doing here, he's quoting 
this passage from Genesis saying the offspring is the children of God is through the promise line, through the line of promise, not through the flesh. And so Abraham's true descendants, the children of God, his true descendants are children of promise. They are spiritual seed. They are not natural seed. And so we have to trace the natural, the spiritual seed through Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, including Judah. And then Judah has Jesus. And then Jesus has us. Doesn't go through anybody but Isaac. We now go through to Romans 9, verse 8. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring, which is what I've been saying here. Paul sums it up nicely in verse 8. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. If you belong to Christ, that means me, a non-Jewish Gentile. If I belong to Christ, I'm Abraham's seed. Heirs, according to the promise. The promise, the promise, not the flesh, but the promise. Again, that's the whole point here. Paul is trying to say, look, God's promise hadn't failed because they are spiritual seed. People who believe in Jesus, including you Romans, you believe in Jesus. So therefore, by believing in Jesus, you prove that God's promise hadn't failed because it's not the physical Jews that God is talking about when he talked about the promise. He's talking about the spiritual Jews. We go to verse 9. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. The promise. Again, the whole thing about Abraham's promises is extremely important. And so Paul mentions it here. And this he's referring to the promises given in Genesis 18.10 and 14. Genesis 18.10 says this. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time. And your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Genesis 18:14. Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. There's the promise of a son. And that was the promise of Isaac. So the promise, the spiritual line of seed, the spiritual line of descendants is through Isaac. Because Isaac was the promised son that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 18. So he was the son of promise not of the flesh. Promise versus flesh, promise versus flesh. That's the big contrast here. And because they are children of the promise in existence there in Rome, that means God's promise has not failed. We now go to the most controversial chapters in all the universe. Most controversial verses, I should say, in all the universe. Romans 9, 10 through 12. And not only that, but also Rebecca received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac. Now again, Paul is referring to this promise line this this line of seed that's promised from god as opposed to the flesh he, that's this his theme here and we're going to get caught up in this controversy in just a minute and it's easy to forget the context the context is there's a there's a, a line of promise and there's a line of flesh but there's a line of promise that counts let's don't forget that so let's continue in romans 9 verse 11 paul continues for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad now, Rebekah's sons were Jacob and Esau. They had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older, that's Esau, will serve the younger, that's Jacob. Now, when Paul says also Rebekah, he's using another example of how fleshly descendants are not of the line of promise, which is his theme here, as I've been saying over and over again. He's already mentioned Abraham had fleshly descendants that weren't of the line of promise, namely Keturah's sons and namely Hagar's son, Ishmael. And so now here's another example. Rebekah has a fleshly son who was not of spiritual Israel, namely Esau. They, Rebekah, uh, Esau was physically descendant of Abraham, of course, of, of Isaac, I should say, but 
Esau was not of the spiritual seed, of the promised seed. Now we have a textual problem here in verse 10. The Holman Christian Study Bible says, and not only that, but also Rebecca received a promise. The NIV has, but not only that, oh, blah, blah, blah. but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. The Holman Christian Study Bible translation emphasizes the promise aspect of this a little bit better, but also Rebecca received a promise. Uh, so I'm just going to assume that's the correct reading there, based on the context rather than on the Greek which I or the text, textual variance, which I don't understand or know which is the best. Now, when God tells R- Rachel, or Rebecca, excuse me, when God tells Rebecca that the older child, her older child, Esau, would serve the younger child, Jacob, that was very unusual. It was completely contrary to the customs of the time. Now, Paul says in verse 10 of Romans 9 that when she... Rebecca became pregnant by one man, even though this shows that even though they had the same physical ancestor, that one man, Isaac, even though they had the same physical ancestor, Isaac, Esau and Jacob were of two entirely different seeds. Physically, they had the same mother as well as the same father. That would be Rebecca and Isaac. They were born on the same day. They were even womb mates, <laughs> womb mates. But spiritually, God had chosen Jacob and rejected Esau. So only Jacob was of the spiritual seed. Esau was not. Now, there's a question of what Paul means when he says the older will serve the younger. Does it mean temporal servitude? John Gill denies that. He says it can't be that. Esau never served Jacob. The Armen- John Gill's a Calvinist, but the Armenians also like to say that too. See there? This cannot be talked about people because Esau never served Jacob. On the contrary, Jacob at one time even feared for his life because of Esau. In other words, the older one, Jacob, was, it sounds like he's serving the older one, but God said, no, the younger is going to serve, the older is going to serve the younger. But anyway, it doesn't sound like it's uh, temporal servitude. How about national servitude? This is what the Armenians say. You could argue, well, you could say, eventually the kingdom of Israel became much more powerful than Edom. So the descendants of Edom ended up serving the descendants of Jacob. Okay, that's possible. On the other hand, you could say that the descendants of Isaac ended up in slavery in Egypt, and Esau's descendants became dukes and kings in Edom, so therefore the older ended up being on top of the younger. So that doesn't sound like he's talking about national servitude. Well, it just depends on how you look at it, whether you look at it in the short term. In the short term, Esau was on top and Jacob was on the bottom, being slaves in Israel, Jacob, Jacob's descendants, and Esau's descendants being King, dukes and kingdoms of Edom in the short term, but in the long run, Edom shrank and eventually disappeared, actually. The Babylonians eventually got it, and Israel became more and more powerful under, well, I guess you could say under Herod. But at any rate, we're going to go into a lot of arguments about whether this is talking about national servitude a lot in just a minute, so I'll just mention it here. I don't believe that's the, the answer, but we still haven't figured out how did Jacob, did Esau serve Jacob? How did the older serve the younger? John Gill says it's spiritual servitude. Jacob had inherited the Jacob inherited the blessing. Esau rejected it, so the promise came through Jacob. So within that sense, Esau ended up serving Jacob because Jacob had the promises. Now notice that the election that God did, God's purpose according to election, His purpose was to establish a spiritual seed. It was according to election. This happened before. Jacob or Esau had been born yet before they had done anything good or bad. And this illustrates Paul's point is that election is not based on works. One of the 
cardinal themes of the New Testament. Jacob got chosen, but what good had Jacob done in his mother's womb? He hadn't done a darn thing to get chosen. Now, of course, the, the corollary to that is Esau hadn't done anything to get unchosen. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we start talking about election. Now, here's the big controversy, so I'm going to get into it here. Now, people have argued over this for over 1,000, 1,500 years, maybe 2,000, all the way back to the time of Augustine. All right, it's been going on forever and ever, and it creates so much animosity, these, these arguments do. I remember one time I was teaching on this with a teenage Bible study, and when we got to this part, one of the young girls in the Bible study stands up and starts yelling at me. How can you say that? How can you say that? How can you say that? God's a God of love. And on and on. And another friend that was teaching at a Bible institute, he didn't even comment on the passage here. He just read it. And when he read it to the class, they all start ranting and raving and yelling and objecting to him. He said, all I did was read it. I didn't even give my opinions about it. Well, I think there's a reason why people get so upset over this. I'll talk about it as we go. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you briefly the argument that it stands for personal salvation, personal election, I should say, personal choice by God, and that God chooses us not based on our works because Jacob was chosen not because of anything he did in the womb. I'm going to briefly give you that side, even though that's the side I believe. I'm not going to spend as much time on that. I'm going to spend most of the time on the Arminian objection to that Calvinist interpretation, because the Calvinist interpretation on first blush seems the one that ought to be. In fact, most Calvinists instinctively turn to that passage, and most Arminians try to avoid it as much as they can, unless you've got one real sophisticated theological Arminians like Geisler and Adam Clark. I'm going to use Adam Clark to present a Arminian side. And I will say this, a lot of my arguments that I use to counter Clark are mine alone. I haven't studied this issue enough to actually find arguments in the theologians and the commentators that match Clark's arguments, and I thought his arguments were pretty strong, a lot of them. So I did the best I could to try to argue against them. So I'm trying to get both sides here. I'm trying to emphasize the Arminian side of the thing, even though I'm going to take a Calvinist position because I'm a Calvinist. He who controls the microphone controls the spin. All right, first, the option that the election was to personal salvation. This is favored by Calvinists, as I said. First argument. From John Gill, it was literally Jacob who was chosen and Esau who was rejected. Now, the Armenians are forced to say that the election was symbolically about the nation of Israel, Jacob, and symbolically the nation of Edom, Esau. But literally, who was chosen? It was a baby in, her, in his mother's womb that was chosen, Jacob, not a nation. There were not two nations literally in Rebekah's womb. The two nations might be symbolically in there, but they weren't literally in there. Now, if you have a choice between literal and symbolic, what is it you're most likely going to choose? What has the stronger appeal to your reason? The literal. So that's your first argument. Second argument, and to me, this is the best argument, the context of Romans 9. The first part of the chapter, as I've just finished talking about, is talking about the fact that individuals believe, and therefore God's promise to Israel has not failed. Paul is talking about the spiritual seed, those who believe, Abraham's seed. That's talking about personal belief, people who have righteousness apart from the law. That's not talking about a nation. That's talking about individual Christians. The NIV Study Bible puts it this way. In verses 6 through 13 of Romans 9, Paul is clearly dealing with personal and not national election. He's dealing with personal election, not national election. He is not portraying the nation of Israel 
Jacob over the nation Edom, Esau, and I agree with that perfectly. Further going for the context, not only in Romans 9, talking about individual believers, either Jewish or Gentile, who believe and therefore ratify the fact that God has not rejected his nation Israel from it because of individual believers, we have individual believers being talked about in Romans 8. Romans 8 is about personal sanctification at the first part of the chapter and glor- personal glorification at the end of the chapter. Let me read you a quote from Alfred Barnes. The chapter, this is chapter 8, therefore has not reference to national election or to choice to external privileges, but has direct reference to the doctrine of the election to salvation which has been stated in Romans 8. To suppose that it refers merely to external privileges and national distinctions makes the whole discussion unconnected, unmeaningful, and unnecessary. So that's why I say the context argument is the best. Why would Paul all of a sudden be talking about Israel in the middle of of chapters where he's talking about personal sanctification and glorification and justification? He wouldn't be. All right, well, let's look at the Armenians' argument that Paul is talking about elections to nationhood. First argument, this is something I've already mentioned, Esau, who was the older, never served the younger, not physically. So, of course, the answer to that is, as John Gill says, it's talking about spiritually. You have to, you're, the natural descendants of Abraham have to submit themselves to the spiritual descendants of Abraham by believing if they're going to come into the kingdom. Second argument that the Armenian Jews, Malachi 1, verses 2 through 5. This is the verse that Paul quotes when he says, the older serves the younger. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This is the verse in the Old Testament. Now, Adam Clark says, the Armenian, he says that this is talking about nations. Now, it does. It does talk about the nation of Jacob and the nation Esau. But as we go through here, there are four personal references to Jacob and Esau also. So even in this strong verse, which is used to support the Armenian side, that election to nationhood is being talked about, there are references to persons, which indicates that perhaps it's personal salvation that's being talked about. Malachi 1, 2 through 5, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved me? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now, there are the four references. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? That's personal Esau, Jacob's personal brother. That is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob personally, but I hated Esau personally. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom, now that's the country, Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people of the Lord is cursed forever. So yeah, Edom, the country is being talked about. That we will give that to the Armenians. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say the Lord is great. All right, so obviously Edom is being talked about as a country, but even in the very passage that the Armenians used to establish that, proposition. Even in that very passage, we have four references to Jacob and Esau as people, individuals. And besides, even if that were not true, in the New Testament, Paul often quotes the Old Testament in a different sense than it was used in the, in the Old Testament. A great example of this is Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There God calls his nation of Israel a son. So it's a nation in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Matthew turns that nation into an individual. Matthew 2.15b. Out of Egypt I call my son. And he's clearly referring to Jesus there, coming back from after Herod's persecution was over, after Herod the Great died. So there we have an example of how a New Testament writer takes the son that's in 
the Old Testament, which was a nation, and turns it into the antitype, if you will, into Jesus. Likewise, Paul's doing the same thing. In the Old Testament, Israel was a son, but in the New Testament, the son he's talking about is an individual. So I don't think that the second Armenian argument there in Malachi 1, 2 through 5, talking about a nation, amounts to a hill of beans. Now we go to the third Armenian argument. God later forgave Esau, according to Adam Clark. I take his word for it. I guess he forgave Esau. Esau seems to have settled down a good bit. So God forgave Esau. The implication of that is God did not elect Jacob to personal salvation and choose Esau for personal damnation because Esau was forgiven. So since the individual Esau was not damned, therefore we can't say that Jacob was individually elected to salvation. Well, how do we know that God forgave Esau because Jacob forgave Esau? That's the reason that Clark gives. Now, we do know that Jacob forgave Esau, but does that mean that God forgave Esau all of his sins? Just because I forgive someone today, does that mean they're saved? I don't think so. That's a very weak argument. We go to next argument. How could a God of love tell a mother that one of her sons was damned from eternity? As Adam Clark says. Now, this is an emotional argument. This is what Rebecca was told. She was told the older will serve the younger. And Clark says that, that what that means is God told, that, told her that one of her sons was damned from eternity. Well, first, right off the bat... God did not tell Rachel that Esau was damned from eternity. She was told the older will serve the younger. I'll get to that in a minute, but let's read what Clark says here. And were such a personal reprobation intended, means was Esau personally damned to hell, and were such a personal reprobation intended, is it not shocking to suppose that the God of endless mercy, in whose sight his pious parents had found favor, should inform them even before their child was born, that he had absolutely consigned him by an irrevocable decree to eternal damnation. A message of such hard import coming immediately from the mouth of God to a tender, weak, and delicate woman, whose hour of travail with two children was just at hand, could not have failed to produce abortion and destroy her life. But the parents perfectly understood their God and saw no decree of reprobation in his message, two manner of nations are in thy womb, and the elder shall serve the younger. Well... I agree with Clark that this would sound pretty bad if God had told Rebecca that Esau was damned to hell. But he didn't say that. He said the older will serve the younger. Now, Paul takes that, what happened in the Old Testament, and uses it in the New Testament to show that, yes, some people will be damned to hell, including Esau. But Rebecca didn't know that. She didn't know how Paul was going to use this. And so Clark's argument falls on its face when he says, how could a God of love tell a mother that one of her sons was damned from eternity? The God of love never told Rebecca that. And besides, we don't know that Esau was damned to eternity. We know that he was not chosen by God to be in the physical line of descent through which the Messiah would come. But that's not the same thing as saying Esau is damned to eternity. He could have been grafted back in just like anybody else, like any other Gentile that's not in the physical line of descent from Abraham, from Adam to Abraham to Noah to David to Jesus. If we're not in that physical line of descent, we still can't get saved. We are saved by salvation by faith, apart from the works of the law through grace. Esau could have done the same thing. I hope he did. That argument is no good, in my humble opinion, that the Armenian Jews. Now, here's their fifth argument. Children is not in the text, so nations are more likely meant. Quote, Adam Clark, as the word children is not in the text, the word nations would be more proper. For it is of nations that the apostle speaks, 
as the following verses show, as well as the history to which it refers. Well, it's true, the word children is not in the text. However, there's another word in a thin tone that is in the text in Romans 9.11. It's the third person masculine plural aorist passive. You, it, because it's masculine plural, that's the important thing. It's masculine plural. Its immediate reference is to the twins, the sons. And in fact, I looked in 23 translations. Not one translation had any reference to nations, but they all translated that word, tone. They all translated it as children, or excuse me, as twins or as sons or something like that. Not one reference to nations. Not one. Not even a slight reference. Some would put the word children in brackets or italics to show that it was not directly in the text. Some would just say they to avoid the problem. But obviously the reference of they was the twins or sons. Because what else could Ganethentone refer to? Masculine plural? Were they two masculine plural nations in Sarah's womb? I don't think so. 23 translations. Not one mention of nations. How could it refer to nations? Let's read it this way. For though... Her nations had not been done yet, nor done anything good or bad. That doesn't make any sense, because it was her sons that the, that the word is talking about. And the, so there is a word in the text that means sons or twins, and very clearly means sons or twins. So that argument by Clark is, in my humble opinion, bogus. And that's it. So I've done my best I can for the Armenians. Maybe Armenians can do better. I don't know. I will say this. That this is not a this is an intramural debate. It don't, it, this issue has created such controversy that a lot of people get a little bit snooty about it on both sides of the issue, and there's no reason to think like that. Armenians are our brothers. The majority of the Christian church is Armenian. I say that with tears, but that's the way it is. And so I don't reject Armenians as Christians, and and uh, no Armenian should reject me as a as a Christian either. Now there are some Armenians out there talking about how John Calvin went to hell and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's on both sides. I remember reading something the Augustus Top Lady said about Armenians. It was disgraceful. Augustus Top Lady being a strong Calvinist. Augustus Top Lady, of course, was the author of that well-known hymn, "Rock of Ages." Back in the times, I think of, what was that, the 18th century, I think it was. But, it, but speaking of the 18th century, how about Whitfield and Wesley, two real good friends, both on opposite sides of that theological issue. I'll give you another example. One of the best friends I ever had in my life, he led me into the baptism of the Holy Spirit when I was at the University of South Carolina, about to lose my faith. I was friends with him for years. He was a convinced Arminian, grew up in the Methodist Church until one weekend, a blessed weekend, I still remember it. He asked me down to his house for a weekend, and we sat there, didn't, we ate, but we didn't take a bath, we didn't sleep too much, we just sat there and talked Arminian and Calvinist theology, and he finally decided he was a Calvinist. But until then, for 20, 30, however many years I'd known and been his real good friend, we never had any problem with it. Now, let me make one last opinionated comment. I think the reason that Armenians get so upset over this verse is they say, how can God choose to send people to hell against their free will and that kind of thing? Well, first of all, everybody that goes to hell goes there because they want to. They don't want to be with God. So that's misstating the case right then. But then the Armenian will say, well, it's just not fair. A lot of them will say, not all of them, but a lot of them will say it's not fair for God to choose some and not the others and of course the answer to that is hey if god chose to send everybody to hell for what we've done we all have sinned we all deserve to go to hell so that's theologically not a good argument but let me let me 
point out to you a sort of a U2 argument. You, you, Mr. Arminian, you say that Calvinists have, are preaching a God that doesn't love because he sends people to hell. Well, let me ask you, do you represent a God of love? If you are a loving father and you have a little kid and you have three places for him to play, option A, he can play in his crib. Option B, he can play in his front yard. Option C, he can play on the freeway, on the interstate. Now, you're a loving father. Do you give him option C to play on the interstate? No, you don't. All right, now God is our loving father. He gives us the free will option to go to hell. And you're going to tell me that's a loving father? You see, you've got the same problem as an Arminian that I have as a Calvinist. The problem is hell. It's not free will. It's not God choosing and not choosing. So please, don't point your finger at Calvinists and say, oh, you have a God that doesn't love people. That's nonsense. So let's now turn to our last verse in this audio, Romans 9:13. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Well, first of all, does that show that God hated Esau? No, it doesn't. That word hated just means didn't choose. It's equivalent to, as the NIV Study Bible points out, it's equivalent to Jacob I chose, but Esau I rejected. Uh, as a internet source I have, Reinecker says that the Hebrew idiom in Malachi meant God preferred Jacob over Esau. That's the verse that Paul is quoting in Malachi. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. It's a Hebrew idiom. It just means you didn't choose somebody. For example, if a woman chooses suitor A over suitor B, she would hate suitor B using the Hebrew idiom. And a good, great example of this is Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so people say, oh, my gosh, God says we're supposed to hate our father and mother, which directly contradicts the verses that say we're supposed to honor our father and mother. I mean, heck, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Well, I don't know why modern translations insist on translating the verse that way, verses that way, because it's confusing as it can be. I remember I had a Chinese person ask me that, and because in China, you know, you've got to revere, you've got to worship your father and mother almost, despite the fact they don't ever get along. <laughs> Their culture says you're supposed to really, everything they say and do, you're supposed to honor them to the max. And, they, and so then they say, well, what does this verse mean, hate your father and mother? It doesn't mean you hate them with emotion. It just means you don't, if it comes to a choice between Jesus and your father and your mother, you choose Jesus over your father and mother who are telling you not to choose Jesus. And that happens all the time. It happened to me. It happens to a lot of people. It doesn't mean I hated my atheist father, but it means I didn't choose him. Now, note the difference between this election, the election of Jacob over Esau, compared to the election of Isaac over Ishmael in the preceding generation. The election of Isaac over Ishmael could be said to be based on natural reasons, because Isaac was born of a wife, Sarah, and not of a concubine, Hagar. But on the contrary, Jacob was chosen over Esau, not for any natural reason. They were both born not of a concubine, but of a mother who's in the line of succession along with her husband, Isaac. And so there was no way to distinguish the two as far as who's elected and who's not elect, except the sovereign choice of God. All right, let's finish up this section by not forgetting the context. How does election in these last several verses illustrate Paul's main point? What was his main point? That God chose the elect to fulfill his promises to Abraham to show that God's Abraham God's promises to Abraham did not fail and that God is a faithful God. He makes a covenant. He doesn't lie. Well, it might look like he lied. It might look like he's failed to fulfill his covenant promises because so many natural Jews are not believing in Jesus. But Paul says, no, the promise, the covenant promises were aimed at spiritual Jews, inward Jews not natural, physical Israel. 
and those spiritual Jews were chosen by God based on his sovereign choice, not based on our works. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. We will continue with this problem of election in Romans 9 in our next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 